Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin, broadcasting from my home in Westchester County, New York. The experience of the COVID-19 pandemic has prioritized the importance of health and wellness for many of us, and making nutrition more top of mind than ever before. This is a familiar territory for today's guest, Jason Karp, whose company, Human Co., seeks to invest in and grow health-focused CPG businesses. Human Co. focuses on sustainable, long-term investments in companies and entrepreneurs who are passionate about empowering consumers to live healthier lives, and a broader belief in the idea that brand equity can be built around trust, integrity, and healthier living. Hue is now one of the fastest-growing snacking companies in the U.S. with a strict focus on transparent, simple ingredients to help everyone, quote-unquote, get back to human. Before launching the company, Jason spent years in the New York investing world, culminating in six years as founder and CEO of asset manager Turbion Capital Partners. Jason's focus on health and wellness and the genesis behind HumanCo has deeply personal roots. He was diagnosed with several autoimmune diseases in his early 20s and was told he'd be blind by the age of 30. He discovered that poor food and poor product choices were the root causes of his diseases. He cured himself and restored his vision by focusing on cleaner living and being fanatical about ingredients. Human Co. just came out of stealth mode, launching amidst this pandemic. Jason, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having me. Really excited to have you on. You have an incredible province story. So recovery is arguably a thread that goes through quite a bit of your personal and professional experience. You call yourself a recovering hedge fund manager in your Twitter bio. And the genesis of Human Co. has deeply personal roots in terms of what I mentioned earlier, your own diagnosis and your own self-recovery and your discovery. Can you tell me a bit about your professional and personal backgrounds and how the two prompted and now they're intersecting for the creation of Human Co.? You're the first person to comment on the recovering hedge fund manager thing. For those who've been in the high pace finance area, I think a lot of people can relate in terms of how much it takes out of you and how much you sort of have to give to it to be good at it. Straight out of college, I actually went to a hedge fund before hedge funds were kind of a thing in mid-1998. I was a college athlete at University of Pennsylvania, and I always sort of thought, and I was a competitive tennis player my whole life, and I always thought I was healthy. I sort of did the things that back in the 80s and the early 90s, people said you were supposed to do to be healthy. But as a kid and growing up, I always had bad allergies. I was sick a lot more frequently than my friends. And we sort of never really looked into it or made a thing of it because back then people really didn't diagnose any of this stuff or really care about this stuff. And within my first year and a half of working in the kind of high-paced New York City finance investment world, I kind of fell into the same patterns that everyone else did, which was I was working 14 to 16 hours a day, eating like crap most of the day. I was not really exercising because I wanted to get ahead and I was prioritizing work. And from when I was in college, I had a very overachiever mindset of anything I put my mind to, I sort of believed I could do a good job at. And so now that I was in this new arena of investing where there was basically limitless upside to doing a good job, I got kind of trapped in the kind of hamster wheel of trying to just be the best. And I realized pretty soon after I had started that while I had some good early success 
from a financial perspective and certainly from a, my bosses at the time telling me I was doing a good job, I started to get progressively sicker and sicker. And I wasn't sleeping much. I was drinking a lot of caffeine in the morning. I was drinking alcohol at night. I was eating sandwiches and crap throughout the day. I was probably exercising maybe one to two times a week max. And I didn't fully understand what was happening to me, but I just kept feeling worse and worse. And then it started manifesting more physically in terms of visible symptoms. My hair started falling out in clumps. I started developing psoriasis and eczema all over my body. And again, I just tried to kind of push through it as an overachiever is apt to do. And then my vision started to go. And that was what really sort of caught me off guard. And I started seeing double for a while. I went and got my eyes checked out from a few doctors. And then ultimately, I was diagnosed with the degenerative corneal disease for which there's no cure. I had to put my name on a corneal transplant list when I was 23 years old. And they basically said I would be blind by the age of 30 if it continued to progress at that rate. And I fell into a deep depression at the time. It was my first real wake-up call in life because I was more financially successful even at that point than I sort of thought I would be even in my 30s. And I sort of had thought that financial success meant happiness, and I had never been more depressed. I didn't want to leave the house. I was ashamed of what I was going through. I didn't tell most people. I really dumbed down what was going on with me to my friends, to my family. I was a very proud kid at the time, but I refused to accept the diagnoses. And I started doing a lot of research on some of my symptoms. And I ultimately discovered that there was sort of an obscure medical journal. And this is sort of early, early internet days. This is 2000. And I discovered an obscure medical journal that linked my eye disease to certain atopic skin diseases like eczema and psoriasis. And I just developed this naive, you could almost call it almost really uninformed hypothesis that if I could reverse my skin disorder, that maybe my vision would also get better and that there was a linkage between all of my symptoms. And I had discovered in college a couple of times that there were certain things that happened to me when I ate a certain way or didn't sleep, where I had these sort of bouts of eczema. And so I basically decided at the time, which now they call an elimination diet, to start removing things from my diet, start improving my sleep, and just to sort of see if I could make my skin issues go away, maybe it would help with my eyes. And long story short, I gave up alcohol, caffeine, processed foods, junk food, gluten at one point. I'm now strictly gluten-free. And I noticed that some of the symptoms started getting better. And over the course of about a year, which by the way, was very hard to go alcohol-free and caffeine-free as a 23-year-old single guy in New York City. As a 50-year-old married guy with two kids who pretty much drinks tequila every night and wakes up to a triple espresso, it's also <laughs> hard. <laughs> don't judge me though. Don't judge me. But like back then... <laughs> Now it's sort of cool to say like, oh, I don't drink alcohol or whatever. But back then it was really freakish and the social pressure was immense. But I just had to do it because I was determined to see if this was linked. And over the course of a year, through all of these interventions, everything reversed and my vision came back and the ophthalmologist, some fancy New York City ophthalmologist who thought what I had was incurable, did not believe that I had reversed this seemingly incurable disease through food. And from that moment on, I remember vividly, you have those moments in your life where you can remember them to the minute 
that changes your life's trajectory forever. And when I walked out of that office, I remember thinking, I am never going to take Western dogma and, quote, expertise as seriously as I did historically. And I was going to question everything myself. I had a newfound appreciation for the healing powers of food and the healing powers of a healthier lifestyle. And frankly, the poison that is in our modern lives that I didn't discover it until a decade or more later that I have what's called a genetic polymorphism, which is, they don't use the word mutation because mutation sounds so negative, but polymorphisms are variations in people's genes that lead to some things are positive and some things are negative and I don't detoxify properly. And so adulterants and things that are in the air, things that are in cosmetics or things you put on your body or things you put in your body that are toxic. And we as humans ingest toxins all day, every day, but we have natural ways of clearing them out. I don't clear them out as easily as normal people do. And so I get sicker much faster, like a canary in a coal mine. And so over the course of, call it the last 20 years, I've had to become an expert on all of this stuff because I'm trying to never relapse into how I was in 2000, 2001. And as I started building that kind of lifestyle, I developed a sort of profound love and appreciation for how to make things in a healthier way that are still awesome. And I for the last call it 18 years, this was just a happy, fun kind of passion. And I stayed in the hedge fund industry until the beginning of 2019. And on the professional side, I've always loved investing and I've always loved games and challenges and puzzles. And I love human psychology and behavioral finance. And I love the idea of building things. And I think that I've always been an entrepreneur from when I was even pre-teenager years when I would start these kind of cockamamie businesses on my sidewalk. And my father was a great influence on me in terms of my entrepreneurial spirit. But I channeled my entrepreneurial energy mostly through investing, at least as my day job until early 2019. But in late, call it probably 08, early 09, my brother-in-law, and now I'm segueing into the Hugh story and the precursors to HumanCo. My brother-in-law, who's my wife's brother, I used to read all these different books on functional medicine and biohacking and all different ways. I've always been obsessed with self-improvement. And he started reading some of the same books that I was reading. And fortunately, he didn't have some of the autoimmune things that I did, but he just was fascinated with making himself better. How does he look better? How does he perform better? How does he feel better? How does he sleep less? And he started eating the way that I was eating. And at one point he said to me, hey, Jason, there's really no place in New York City where you can get the kind of quality of food that we want to eat every day, where there's an inherent trust in how it's made, where the focus is on people first, profit second. And at the time, and this is only 12 years ago now, you had two kind of, it was like almost a very bifurcated focus on healthy food. You had kind of what I'll call the bohemian vegan hippie movement, which was raw vegan type of food. And as a foodie, which I am, like it's not good. It doesn't taste good. It's never tasted good. I had to eat it at one point. And it's highly processed, right? Oftentimes highly processed. Well, some of it is, and I'll get to that, the whole Beyond Meat Impossible Burger thing. 
but it wasn't really good. And then on the other side of the coin, you had the very expensive farm to table movement where they bring you a pork loin and they tell you the name of the pig that was slaughtered to produce it for you. And it's very expensive. And so we wanted to create a place where you could trust everything inside of the walls, but it was approachable. And we wanted to create a place that had everything from prepared foods to cooked foods to snacks that all were done in this way where every single ingredient was vetted, adulterants weren't added, and we eliminated a lot of the things that Jordan and I believed caused inflammation. That was the beginnings of Hugh Kitchen. And Hugh Kitchen was originally a restaurant. It's called Hugh because we believe that people needed to get back to eating like a human should. And I did a ton of research as an investor on modern sickness because I was going through a lot of my own versions of modern sickness and chronic disease, diabetes, heart disease, all of these diseases are ravishing the modern world. It is the, and I say this without sounding too bombastic, and I can't emphasize this enough, it is the single most important thing that humanity is dealing with right now, much more so than global warming, much more so than this current pandemic of COVID. And it's not even debatable. I mean, to some communities, things like global warming are still debatable. This is clinically proven with excessive amounts of scientific evidence that our food and lifestyle are contributing to the exponential rise in all of these diseases. This is the first generation in recorded human history that's predicted to live shorter than the previous generation, other than wars. And it's so important. And yet people don't talk about it because like global warming, it's not my problem today. I'll deal with it when I'm 60 or 50 or 80. And it takes years and sometimes decades to show up meaningfully in people. But if you eat this certain way and you live this certain way, you will get diabetes. You will live shorter. You will get sick. You will spend an exponentially more amount of money on just keeping yourself from dying. And so I kind of took it as a moral imperative to try to upend this problem, both for myself, because I needed a place to eat, and for my children and for other people. And so this kind of set the stage for me as an investor and an entrepreneur, where around the time of the starting of Hugh Kitchen, we also created products inside of our restaurant, most notably our chocolate. And we basically had to create our own chocolate because we couldn't find chocolate that met our own ingredient guardrails. Our chocolate is dairy-free, it's gluten-free, it's refined sugar-free, it's preservative-free, it's chemical-free, it's organic, and it's made with three, really two simple ingredients. And our chocolate really gained a lot of early kind of adoption because it tastes so good without all the shit that is in conventional candy. And when I saw that start to work, and again, like our approach to Hugh wasn't deliberately like a venture capitalist type of approach where you raise a ton of money and you try to grow it really fast and then sell it. It was really a passion project and very mission driven. But what happened was the restaurant and the chocolate business grew much faster than we all expected. And then I realized how much I enjoyed being in more of an operator role and seeing how the business was built, seeing all the challenges of that. And I started becoming an angel investor in many other businesses that had a mission-driven orientation and had a real focus on making better things that help people live healthier lives. Wow. I have 
probably 50 questions. I'm going to try and hone them down though, because there's so many different things you said there. First of all, did you, or do you have asthma? Just out of curiosity. I did have asthma. I no longer have asthma. Amazing. People listen to this podcast probably are sick of hearing me talk about this, but I don't know. I was called Aaron asthma boy. I mean, kids are really mean in the seventies and eighties and I'm a lifelong asthmatic. I have tempered it. So I'm just kind of curious because I do think that some of it has to do with nutrition. And there's certain things and foods that I eat that I know afterwards I don't feel well. And I know there's a direct link between what I'm putting in my body and how my body is reacting or responding to it. And I think what you said before about certain people like yourself cannot process or get rid of that body burden, the toxic chemicals, the toxicity that we're all, it's really interesting. And I'm just wondering, just from a social standpoint, both when you're in your early 20s and also to today, and I think today people are far more enlightened and educated about these things. How do you handle the social stigma around living this lifestyle and going out and going out to eat? That's always a big question. Obviously, I know that you can make great things and you can find great things, but that's really challenging going to a restaurant. And that's so much part of our culture, sharing foods and being with each other. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's been really hard. It's gotten progressively easier over the last 20 years. But when I first started doing this kind of stuff, you get a lot of shaming. You get a lot of like machismo of how can you not drink or how can you not do this? And it was really hard. I'd say there were many periods where I'd get made fun of or I'd get shamed into, why don't you just try this? It's just one. It's not going to be a big deal. And, and I would just remind them about how sick I was and how depressed I was and what I went through and that this is what makes me feel better. It's very hard for people to relate if you've never been in it and you've never been in the places that I have been mentally. And you just develop a sense of self-confidence and strength to know that. And there are many times that I buckled and I'd feel it afterwards or I'd pay for it. And you just get to the point where you just stop caring about what other people think and you got to do what keeps you happy and healthy. But it is very hard. And thankfully, it has gotten so much easier. This concept of food as medicine is now accepted. And even five years ago, less than 20% of medical schools teach nutrition. And it's an abomination. And for most people who are listening to this, and certainly for anyone I've ever asked, if you go to a conventional doctor, I don't know a single person who's ever told me that the first question or any time the doctor's asked, what are you eating? And that is just shocking because it is the single most important variable that determines how you look, how you feel, and ultimately what happens to your health. The Western medicine philosophy has always been about treating symptoms and not treating the root causes of what causes those diseases. There's a whole new field that, again, was considered quackery for a long time called functional medicine. And one of the pioneers is a guy named Dr. Mark Hyman, who was one of my early influences. And he's actually an investor in Hugh, incidentally. And he's now has a very prestigious practice at the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the foremost acknowledged medical establishments in the country. Thankfully, now it is very well established that there is real science and real evidence behind this concept of what you put in your body does determine what ultimately happens to you, particularly diabetes, where there's a blatantly clear linkage in terms of cause and effect. So yeah, it's been hard, but it's gotten a lot easier. And part of also why my family and I built Hugh 
and why I wanted to do Human Co. as the next chapter of my career is that this is who I am and this is how I live. And I also love doing it. And I wanted to basically create the ultimate kind of manifestation or culmination of everything I've learned on the investment side, as an entrepreneur, as a board member, and as a survivor of all of these health issues that I've been through. It's just given me a lens in terms of how I look at things that I find to be unique. I imagine too that it's kind of like people who quit smoking. Before they quit smoking, they needed to either change their friend groups, change their routines, change their life flow. I imagine that viewing food as medicine and understanding functional medicine requires a little bit of that as well sometimes. You have to surround yourself with positive people anyway, but especially when it comes to this. That's a big factor. I think who you surround yourself with and also making sure that the people who are around you, like your family, are supportive of it and not shaming you because it's very easy. And the other thing is, in some ways, I think I was blessed to have the symptoms that I had, which were so extreme when I was 23. I was blessed to have had them then because a lot of my other symptoms, which were much more subtle, you don't realize you have them until you go really clean for like a few months. And then you go, oh my God, I can't believe how much I felt like shit until you know what good feels like. And so for a lot of people, they don't even realize that modern life and how they feel every day is suboptimal until you try being really clean for a couple months. Well, and on that point, so I don't believe in diets. I believe in lifestyles. And early, early days of the podcast, I had the founder of a vegan pet food company come on called Wild Earth. This guy comes in the studio. He's 40. He looks like he's 20. He's like an Adonis. Great guy. I come out of that interview and I'm like, oh, I'm going to be vegan. I could do it. I lasted like a week. And then a couple months later, I'm working out and I watch Game Changers on Netflix. And I'm like, I could do it. Schwarzenegger can do it. All these people can do it. And I actually, for about three months, I was what I called a flexitarian because I decided I can't go from zero to 100. I'm going to make two out of every three meals a day completely vegan. And I was successful for a while. And then we did this trip to Australia. It was very challenging to be able to maintain that. And now I'm like one out of three meals a day. I am vegan. So I guess what I'm asking is, how do you stay with it? How do you make this your lifestyle? And it's not a diet. It's not a habit. It's not a fad. It's just like a thing. Your little anecdote is a highly controversial topic, which is sort of vegan versus non-vegan. I am not vegan. I am omnivorous. Game Changers is a deeply flawed film, as are most of the vegan literatures. And being plant-based, and I'll be crucified for even just saying this, because again, the vegan community is so polarizing and so militant. And can be shaming too. Actually, that's the other side of it. Very, very shaming. And you have to remember that Oreos and French fries are vegan. And <laughs> Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger are not healthy items. They're highly processed. They are definitely healthier for the earth, and they're definitely healthier for cattle. And so if you're focused on environmental causes, great. And a big part of Human Co. is sustainability focused. And most of our products, by the way, within the Human Co. ecosystem are plant-based. So I am a fan of plant-based, to be clear. And Hue products, our chocolate is vegan, our crackers are vegan. Two of the companies within Human Co. are entirely vegan. So I am definitely a fan of plant-based products. 
And I am definitely very much against industrially raising animals in the conditions that they have been raised for the last 40, 50 years, treating them inhumanely, pumping them full of antibiotics, hormones, crossbreeding them to turn into freaks that grow much faster and they're much bigger. So I just have to preface that, that I am definitely a friend of the vegans. Having said that, there has been such dogma around veganism. And again, I have to keep prefacing all this with qualifiers, but movies like Game Changers and books like The China Study, and there've been dozens of documentaries like Forks Over Knives, and all of these are interesting. But what all of these studies do wrong is they conflate causality with correlation. And in most societies, when people start eating meat, they tend to eat really shitty meat. They eat meat from animals that are raised in horrible ways, inhumanely, with chemicals, with pesticides, with growth hormones. So they're eating really bad meat, first of all. And secondly, when societies start eating meat, like when China did 20, 30, 40 years ago, they are shifting away from very natural diets that are coming from the earth. And they're also consuming things that usually come with meat, like French fries and highly processed stuff. And they also start smoking more and they also start exercising everything. and they're frying everything. And so there's all sorts of this. The game changers problem is there's something called a healthy user bias, which is that when people decide to go on any kind of diet, they adopt other healthy habits at the same time. So when I decide I'm going to eat plant-based for the next month, because you're conscientious, you're generally more likely to exercise more you're more likely to actually stop eating as much crap in terms of sugar or sweets. You're more likely to sleep better. You're more likely to just do other things. You're adopting other healthy habits. That's problem number one with these documentaries. The problem number two, which is the biggest issue, is the standard American diet is usually what's used as the baseline of comparison. So if you take the standard American diet, which has an acronym of SAD, S-A-D, for a reason, it is so bad that literally anything will show huge positive improvements. So if you take the average American diet, which is filled with tons of processed sugar, tons of preservatives, tons of highly refined crap and carbs and flours, no vegetables, no quality organic wild meats. And there've been some other studies where they've taken people who've been on terrible diets and put them on carnivorous diets, literally pure meat. And you get a staggering improvements. And so this is just my long kind of soapbox about you have to really be careful about what you're comparing stuff to. In terms of what I do is I have some guardrails that are very clear. And then I have guardrails that are gray in terms of the mantra of you got to live a little or the mantra of moderation. I'm probably like a 85, 15, 90, 10 guy in terms of some of the things that are questionable, but And I'll give you some examples. So I need to be gluten-free. So I am very strictly gluten-free. And that's based on my own. I'm gluten intolerant. I see immediate effects from gluten. I didn't know this until probably seven, eight years ago. So I was dabbling with gluten for probably the last 20 years. And as a kid, I ate bread literally every meal of every day. Every meal of every day as a kid, I ate it. So that to me is like off limits. But then there's other things like cane sugar. Cane sugar is obviously a refined sugar. And all refined sugars of any kind in large quantities are terrible for human health. But from time to time, like when I'm in Italy, my vice is Italian gelato. 
I love gelato. Gelato has cane sugar in it. I'm fine with that. And stress, and there's never been a way to quantify this, but stress, mental stress, probably has somewhere on the order of five to 20 times the negative effect on your health than food does. So if you are so psychologically tortured by trying to live a very strict diet, you will actually probably be less healthy than if you're happy and not stressed eating some of these bad things on a daily basis. So what I would tell you is don't be insanely strict because the stress is actually going to counterbalance all the benefits you get from the healthy food. But certain things like chemicals, preservatives, pesticides, those are things you should never consume. Soda, you should never consume. Things that have literally zero nutritional benefit, you shouldn't even bother. But other things, there's plenty of great things that are in excess quantities or clearly unhealthy, but are totally fine to consume in small moderation. Yeah. I mean, some people call them cheat days. I like to just call them missed days or just living. But I kind of subscribe to that notion. That's what I was trying to do as well. If the majority of your intake is healthy and lacks or is missing or absent those things you talk about, I think that's good. Coupled with, I'm very committed to fitness. We talked about this a little bit off air before we hit record. I probably do 10 to 15, sometimes up to 20 hours a week of cardio. It's a lot. But the thing I've learned is that that is a mask for sometimes eating badly because over time it's going to catch up with me. That alone, it's kind of like the analogy used before. It's kind of like that mental stress thing is interesting. It's like going for a long run on a day where the air quality alerts are the highest. You're actually doing yourself more harm than you are good and staying indoors and maybe hitting the treadmill. But I'm glad to hear, no pun intended, that you have a humanistic view and a realistic view as well of trying to live this lifestyle because so many people think it's unattainable, but it sounds like it is actually attainable. It just it's requires quite attainable. a little bit of effort, a little bit of focus, but not so much that you're stressed out. It takes a while to build the habits, but I will tell you, I have seen many people, because these are the circles I traffic in. I've seen many people that are like, let's just say I'm 85, 15 or 90, 10 in terms of being strict and then letting loose. I've seen people who are 95, five or a hundred percent, like never let loose. And I'm sure you've seen them too. And they're vegan and they look gaunt and they look that bags under their eyes. They're very skinny. They don't have that life force vibrancy in them. Yeah, they look ashen is the word I use. Ashen yeah. looking. They look sick actually. And that's not the answer. And then on the other side, there's obviously people who just sort of don't think about it, but live a relatively stress-free life and are able to tolerate and by the way, I've noticed with myself, and I've been sort of biohacking and self-hacking for 20 years now, when I'm more relaxed and I'm less stressed and I'm getting better sleep and I'm exercising regularly, I can tolerate the things that I normally can't tolerate much better. And what I think a lot of people miss is that they try to isolate one variable when in fact all of these variables are interlinked. Yeah, it's a daisy chain. It is. So that I think is what you really have to remember. And just to bring it full circle for this talk, I believe it is too hard to live healthy. And I believe it's too hard to live healthy for a few reasons. The first is that even for the people who are informed, it's still confusing. Are eggs good or eggs bad? Is fat good? Is fat bad? And like basic stuff that even very educated people who read everything they can, you get conflicting news every month. And so it's exhausting to try to read the label and think, oh, can I have this? Can I not have this? And I've spent 20 years trying to figure that out. 
I think I have a sense of it better than most, but I want to make it easier for people who are informed to be healthier. That's sort of problem one is that it's sort of hard to be healthy, even if you know it. Problem two is that it's hard to find and access better stuff for a lot of people. And I don't mean just food deserts. I mean, in even places that are seemingly accessible, airports, gas stations, obviously not many people are going to those right now with COVID. But when you have to stop on the road at a convenience store on a road trip, I mean, the offerings are just terrible. You can't, when you're traveling a lot on the airplane or going through airports, even if you know what you're supposed to look for, it's extremely difficult. And so a big part of why I wanted to create Human Co. was I wanted to create products that people love and don't feel like they're compromising, like what we've done with you, Chocolate, but also recognize that the people behind what we're doing, behind Human Co., have your best interest in mind, that I'm so insane and fanatical about what I do that I'm not going to put anything out there in the world unless it meets my standards and I want to eat it every day or I want to use it every day. And I think a big impediment to people getting healthier is access and ease of use. And I think the more we make these things accessible and the more we expose people to that these things exist and that you can rely on them, I think it's going to empower people with more tools to do what they ultimately need to do. Well, to your point earlier about conflicting information, who do you think we should start listening to? I've got some friends who swear by Ben Greenfield Fitness and his podcast. I think he's a little bit much. I can't take it anymore. But off air, before we hit record, we were talking about the dean of the nutrition school at Tufts and of which you're on the board. He's also your board chair at Human Co. I always butcher his name, Dean Mosafarian. Is that how you say his name? Mosafarian, yep. Mosafarian. So my wife and I heard him speak at a Tufts event. Our eldest goes to Tufts. And we walked out of there like totally blown away. Talk about an expert in functional food. I imagine we need to start listening to more people like him. Who else do we need to listen to? Because there's so much out there. There's kind of two distinct kind of spheres in this area. One is what I would call very strict evidence-based science. And Dr. Mosafarian is excellent in this, where you have very large peer-reviewed studies on many different cohorts of people and populations. And the findings are based on evidence and based on real science and data. Unfortunately, so that gets you pretty far. And that should be sort of step and foundation one, because to deny that is to deny kind of scientific method. But there are a lot of things that science still has not been able to adequately prove in sort of a strict scientific rigorous way. But we know as practitioners that the preponderance of the evidence is there, even though it hasn't been demonstrably proven over and over and over again. And functional medicine tends to live more in that second area than that first. So for example, consumption of excess refined sugar has been demonstrably proven to lead to diabetes in the same way that excess consumption of cigarettes has been demonstrably proven to lead to lung cancer. And now, obviously, it is probabilistic. There's plenty of people who smoke their whole life and don't get cancer. But in terms of probabilities, it is the the T-stats and statistical significance of these things is off the charts. So there's no really debate. There's other things like, is organic produce better for you than conventional produce? That has not been scientifically proven. 
And part of the reason why nutrition experiments are hard to do is you can't really create a control group. It's not humane to force one group of people to consume something that might be bad for them to see what happens. <laughs> and and it's also, bad. as we talked about with the China study and the Game Changers documentary, it's also very, very hard to isolate variables with human beings. So you don't know that if they're being healthier with this one variable, they might be smoking cigarettes on the side. They might be really stressed at work. They might be not sleeping. They might be living in Beijing where there's a ton of pollution. So it's very hard to do human experiments with nutrition. But in the case of organic versus conventional, we know that most conventional crops, particularly fruits and vegetables, where you are consuming the skin. So think of things like berries. They have shown over and over and over again that the pesticides remain on the skin and you are eating pesticides. Now, common sense would tell you it's probably better to not eat chemicals and pesticides that literally kill these insects within seconds. It's probably better to not consume those than to consume those. Do we have enough evidence to say that it's bad to consume pesticides? Yes. Do we have enough evidence to show that conventional produce is worse than organic produce? No. But all functional medicine doctors will tell you that the organic route is going to be better for you and lead to less problems than a conventional route. All else equal. So I would say Dr. Mark Hyman is a great place to start. I think some of what Dari Mozaferian of Tufts has written, he's all over Twitter now, is very sound advice. It's easy to follow. It's not crazy. Most of the scientists have disputed a lot of the myths. This myth that eggs are bad for people, this myth that eggs drive up blood cholesterol is a complete myth. Or even red meat. That's a myth in terms of it being bad for you. Yeah, in general. Although in general. there's certain conditions where red meat is actually statistically significant to be a problem, particularly when you burn it. But yes, another study that, again, I would love for somebody to do, but again, it's very hard to do, is if you took a vegan and had them eat pesticide-ridden vegetables from a dirty farm that uses all of the worst Monsanto methods for growing crops, and you compare that person, you have to do it with identical twins who had identical lifestyles up until that point in time. And then you took the other twin and had them eat wild meat. So meat from only wild, humanely raised animals. And I would wager my life's net worth that the person eating the wild organic meat will have better health outcomes than the person eating the pesticide-ridden plants. And those are the kind of things that are obviously impossible to do in practice. But Dr. Mark Hyman has probably the most amount of stuff in terms of practical lifestyle that's out there. So I would start with those two. So if I found a set of vegan twins where there's one that I liked less than the other, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we could do that experiment. It's really interesting to me and actually incredibly satisfying too, that all these things are coming to the fore. The simplest thing, which is where the paleo diet came from in terms of how to contextualize all this so it's simple. The paleo diet is based on this concept that we have evolved as humans over 200,000 years, which is factual. And that for 99.9% .9 of that evolution, we all ate in a very omnivorous, varied diets. Humans have evolved to survive. And most of the modern food system has been invented and created, including three meals a day, by the way, in the last 200 years. 
And when you think about 200 years relative to 200,000 years, our bodies have not evolved to deal with eating tons of hyper-processed stuff that didn't exist two, 300 years ago. We didn't have a way of making refined cane sugar a thousand years ago. And so a lot of the basic principles of behind paleo, behind functional medicine is just imagine what would your great, great, great grandmother eat? And if it wasn't around 200 years ago, be skeptical of it. And that's it. The closer you are to nature, the closer you are to being able to have pulled it from the ground, cooked it, made it yourself, the more likely you are to be in the right direction. Yeah. And I think if I recall, one of the things that Dr. Mosafarian talked about was how World Wars, World War II in particular, and the American government as well, basically created the processed food movement and certainly accelerated it. No, it's true. Look, a lot of the bad things in today's nutritional environment started with good intentions. 50 years ago, 70 years ago, we were trying to prevent starvation and we were trying to prevent vitamin deficiencies, diseases like scurvy and pellagra. And trying to make food accessible and affordable to the masses when your alternative is starving is a noble pursuit. But like any kind of Frankenstein monster movie, this has gone way too far. And what started with good intentions has become very clear that there were consequences to what we did. So last question. I could probably ask you another 30, but last one. And I had talked about this with the founder and chairman now of Stonyfield Farms, Gary Hirschberg, incredible person. I listened to that podcast. Thank you for doing that. Sure. No, it was my pleasure. Why does eating healthy have to be so expensive? And is part of Human Co's mission to reverse that and remove that tension? Yes. This is always probably the biggest and most important question on this topic. And I think there's a few answers. And a lot of people don't like my answers to this, but I've spent an enormous amount of time on this topic. So first off, if you look at Europe and you look at two countries which pride food the most, France and Italy, if you go back 40 years, those countries spent roughly the same percentage of everyone's annual income on food as Americans did. So what percentage of our wallet we chose to spend on food was comparable to France and Italy? Today, we spend half. America. And that's not because we're richer. That's because we're gross. Those countries have chosen to have disdain for cheap, highly, highly processed fake food. We have not chosen to have disdain for cheap, highly processed cheap food. A cheeseburger with fries, or just take a cheeseburger, okay, as a typical American staple. I haven't been to a McDonald's in probably 15 years, but I remember the last time I went to a fast food place, a cup of fruit was three times the price of a cheeseburger. That should be a big warning sign. How in God's name should a cheeseburger with meat, cheese, a bun, lettuce, tomato, sauce be more expensive than chopped up fruit? And we don't have time to go into how that's happened. But I think part of our problem is Americans have gotten used to very, very cheap food. And organic and better eating is controversial because a lot of people say most of the country, except for the coasts, cannot afford to eat better. And I actually call bullshit on that. And the reason I do, and I spent a lot of time on this, it's a very controversial topic because I'm obviously financially fortunate. And so a lot of people would say, well, you can afford whatever you want to eat, Jason, so shut up. If you have a smartphone, if you've ever bought a 
cup of Starbucks coffee, if you ever have worn a pair of Nike shoes, if you subscribe to any streaming service like Netflix, you are choosing some proportion of your discretionary income that you could be reallocating to slightly better food. And any of those purchases that I mentioned would, if you substituted those out, you could afford better food. And so for probably 90% of the American public, which from my last look does have a smartphone, if you're in abject poverty and you are trying to eat and you need calories and you can't afford to even put food in your mouth, that's different. And I understand, and that is a horrible predicament and we need to, that's a separate solution to try to address that problem. But as it relates to what affects probably 90% of America or more, that's a choice that you are choosing to spend on other things with whatever discretionary income you have left. And so I believe that we have to re-educate Americans the way that France and Italy behave. We have to re-educate them to say, look, eating healthier is actually cool. The same way you aspire to have an Apple iPhone or you aspire to have that next pair of sneakers that's 150 bucks, or somehow you'd think that spending $5 on a cup of coffee is okay, spend an extra dollar at lunch instead of that coffee and spend an extra dollar a day. And you would be shocked with how much more is affordable if there's that reallocation. The second thing is, is that, is that really healthy food, unfortunately, is not easy to make. Catching a wild fish is not easy. That's Gary's point. Exactly. Yeah, it's just not easy. And again, it will be more expensive. But again, we have other countries and other cultures throughout the world that have shown they can eat better food without breaking the bank. They have just chosen to not spend as much on other things. And I think if we teach Americans that if it's super cheap and highly processed and made with chemicals and engineering, that we need to teach them that's not cool. That's not something you should aspire to do. For some reason in this country, we would never, particularly the youth and the millennials and the Gen Zs, they would never be caught dead with a no brand pair of sneakers that was $20 if they had the means to afford a cool pair of whatever shoes they want. But with food, they don't think twice about putting a $2 cheeseburger in their mouth versus a $5 cheeseburger. That's fair. Do you think it's possible to be successful in this movement without the assistance and the radical transformation from the larger CPG companies? Like I know Unilever's trying and it's going to take some time, but doesn't it take as well, both the government regulators, as well as these larger CPG companies to also change their practices and be less conventional? A hundred percent. I think this is a, and Dari Mosaferian from Tufts and I spent a lot of time on this topic. This is going to take a village. There are a lot of large companies who are sincerely changing their stripes, who in the past were selling unhealthy food and they realize that it's caused a problem. And some of them, and I've met with many of the executives of these companies, they genuinely want to fix it, but it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of education and you definitely need to partner with them. And I've partnered with a few large companies in the past because that scale and that distribution is how you get it into more people's mouths at a better, more affordable price because you're not going to affect change by just getting healthy food to people in Manhattan and LA. You need to really get it all over in all walks of life. And so I do think the larger corporations need to be involved. And fortunately, they're moving in that direction because the invisible hand is demanding it. 
people are asking for more healthy products. They're asking for more organic products. They're becoming smarter about, hey, what's in this? Who made it? Where did it come from? Are they trying to dupe me? And what I want to do with HumanCo is just teach people, yeah, there are a lot of companies out there that are trying to dupe you, that are trying to make more money. And it may not be completely malicious. It may just be they're just trying to make more money for their shareholders. But for me, as someone who actually got very sick from all this, this is deeply personal to me. So I really want to change it. Kind of going back to the very beginning, I promise this is the last question. As a former hedge fund guy, as an active investor, my guess is you probably had a little bit of personal dissonance investing in companies on behalf of clients that you didn't necessarily believe in or might be doing not necessarily the right thing as it relates to the topic we're talking about. So now are you making sure that your investments go to companies that are actually making improvements to our health and our well-being and the betterment of the world? Strictly. And I will tell you, even when I was managing a hedge fund, I told many of my investors there were a handful of companies, no matter how appealing the investment was, I would never invest in them. And I was very vocal. Monsanto is a perfect example. There were many times I saw a good investment opportunity in Monsanto to make money. And you can ask Amy, who you know, and you can ask any of my colleagues. That was on our never go long list. We were allowed to short it though. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. I walk the talk. I mean, I take this very seriously. And certainly how I invest now, I won't go near things that I think are harming humanity. I think that's a great place to end. This has been absolutely fascinating. I'm so glad that our friend, big shout out to Amy Zipper, introduced us. And I hope it's the beginning of a much longer and fulfilling relationship. And just real quick, what is the best way for our listeners to follow HumanCo? So we have a website, humanco.com. I am not that active on social yet. My handle is at humancarp, K-A-R-P, on Twitter and Instagram. And we will be creating a newsletter. We've actually sent out one newsletter thus far. If you go to the HumanCo website, you can sign up for our newsletter and you can learn more about what we're trying to do at HumanCo. Awesome. Jason, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. And I can't wait to see what's next with you guys. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com. Follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast. And learn more about our host at aaronquicken.com. Yeah.